time to welcome business commentator Rod Orham. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We have been talking a bit about the trade deal this morning with the uh, latest negotiations towards the Trans-Pacific Partnership underway uh, in Auckland right now. We were talking with Graham Harrison about the, the benefits that uh, certainly the agriculture sector is hoping for and uh, also his um, views on the stalling of trade deals through the multilateral negotiations uh, and, and the hopes, therefore, for this. And, of course, the um, CTU, Bill Rosenberg, just talking about some of the reservations and some of the elements of this deal that are causing concern. What is it you want to focus on? Um, I listened with great interest to the interview, and I'm only going to focus on um, the dairy part of it because the Prime Minister has made um, the opening up of dairy trade into the US as one of the two conditions for what he would term a good TPP, the other one, of course, being preserving Pharmac. So I'm just going to drill down into that one. Now, um, the US uh, dairy market is very highly protected, and the way that our um, well, from our dairy industry tackles that is that it does have some quotas, uh, which also carry small tariffs, about 10%, for example, on cheese. So it uses the markets very tactically. And I've been looking at the trade data for about the last 10 years, and, and you, it was a very interesting pattern there, that there was a time when we filled those quotas quite handedly, um, but increasingly in recent years, um, it's not been advantageous to sell into the States. Um, Fonterra has been able to make much more money on those commodity products um, elsewhere. Now, you could say, well, then that's an argument for removing those quotas and removing those tariffs so we could sell more there. Well, again, it would always be very tactical. It's not, it's not a strategic play for Fonterra. Um, the strategic plays are the big developing markets, not a big mature market like the US where there's very intense competition. So that's the first point I'd make about why it's very odd for the government to focus on the US dairy market when, as Graham Harrison mentioned, um, in a wider context, there's other uh, gains to go for. He mentioned the high tariffs on beef, for example, that his company faces in the likes of Japan and Korea. But you always keep coming back to the US because um, when the Australians tried to do a free trade agreement with the US, well, they did do one, they got a lousy deal on agriculture. So that's why this is such a big stumbling block. Uh, what is the essential barrier to that? And is it going to be domestic US politics that once again is the great challenge to having agriculture as a substantial part of this deal. Um, the politics are incredibly difficult um, on agriculture, not just for the US, but particularly Canada as well, and Japan and some other countries. So I will just focus on the US, though. The US um, is a very interesting industry because um, there, are, there are two distinct and armed camps at each other's throats in the dairy industry. The first is a heavily protected, inefficient, small, typically family-owned farms, um, and their great champion is the National Milk Producers Federation. And it, the federation, was instrumental um, in getting um, an eye-watering new farm bill through the Senate earlier this year uh, with a whole new system of support for such agriculture. And it hasn't gone through the House yet, um, although there's very strong bipartisan support on this because you get um, um, urban Democrats lining up with rural Republicans on this. The Republicans want subsidies and the urban Democrats want food stamps. It's an unholy alliance, but it works. Um, and so that probably won't be um, go through the House until perhaps about April of next year. 
on the other side of the equation in the U.S., you've got um, highly efficient feedlot dairy farmers, uh, particularly in California, but some other parts of the Southwest, who have become very big exporters. So over the last 10 years, they have driven U.S. dairy exports up by 180% to the point there are now about 14% of U.S. production and a very significant player internationally. And they have a completely different view of this. They have been very vocal against the subsidies because they say they will only perpetuate the inefficiencies. Um, and um, if that bill goes through more or less along the lines it is now, they would fully expect that to curtail U.S. production. Now, where New Zealand lines up with this is that um, Fonterra lines up with the very efficient dairy farmers. And so um, because of the tariff and quota barriers in the US, Fonterra and the um, dairy board before it had put a lot of emphasis in exporting higher value non-commodity um, products into the US which weren't caught by tariffs and quotas and also in, in investing in the US. There's a, a number of very interesting cheese joint ventures for example. So that to me is perfect strategy, that Fonterra has been forced to go to the high-value route in the U.S. because of those tariff barriers. And my concern is that if you take those tariff barriers off and quotas, which I don't think will happen because of the politics, but even if it did happen, what happens then classically is the high-cost producers have to move up market because they can't compete. And, and the, the low end of the market defaults to the low-cost producers like we are. And, and so that's completely counter. It's almost a perverse the, incentive. It's perverse, and it is completely counter to the strategy that has served Fonterra very well in the U.S. to deliver, to develop those um, great relationships. It puts them into competition against the highly efficient producers who it works with, and so Fonterra is a very major exporter of their products. So the whole idea that, A, you could get dairy liberalisation in the US, which I think is a nonsense idea, but even if you got it, it was good for the dairy industry, is, to me, is just completely wrong. Why is Canada so significant in this? Oh, well, that's where the, <laughs> the politics get really interesting. Uh, if you thought the US dairy industry was inefficient, well, crikey, it's actually extraordinary in Canada. And so um, in these negotiations, the US dairy industry um, is determined to open up markets in Canada for it. Now, again, the dairy lobby in Canada is phenomenally strong, but it has, um, there is a prime minister in the form of Stephen Harper, um, really quite white, uh, right of centre, very determined to open up the economy, who's determined to push this through. He may. But what's going to happen is, if the US gets a breakthrough into Canada, the US will then turn around and say, ah, we're opening up to Canada, but we're not opening up to New Zealand, because Fonterra um, is a government-influenced um, organisation, that takes us right back to those TPP rules, because of the legislation which allows Fonterra to dominate processing in its domestic market. Now, we know that's nonsense. We know that that stacks up with the WTO, but the TPP isn't playing WTO rules. It's playing, uh, it would play essentially the US rules. So that's where the US dairy industry would try to have its cake, getting into Canada, um, but deny us the cake of getting into the US. And I... Well, I think it would be great if we don't get into the US on commodities for the reasons I just gave. But that's how intensely complicated and actually quite thrilling. Sorry, I don't mean that in a, in a spectatorish kind of way. But, you know, intellectually very challenging uh, these issues are. 
This business of how much the structure of certain New Zealand entities uh, and the example you've just given actually is Fonterra, which is interesting because I hadn't thought about it in this context, but we were talking in the first hour discussion about the state-owned enterprises. Obviously in China they're a massive target because there's so much of their economy. Uh, this talk about whether our state-owned enterprises again could find themselves sucked into this business of being anti-competitive. How seriously do you take that? Extremely. Whereas we um, will probably be able to fend off the case against Fonterra um, in a rules-based organisation like the WTO, TPP isn't. And, and I'm just going to take a, an important tangent here because it's really important. The um, CEOs who signed that open letter yesterday, they've... Uh, the organizations behind them have launched a website. On that website, there is an astonishingly, there's a number of very inaccurate statements, but the one that alarms me most is um, that it says that um, foreign investors have always been able to sue governments. That is completely correct, but that's not the issue in TPP. It's fine for a foreign investor to sue a host country if it does so in its own, in the host country or it goes to a rules-based international organisation, like the WTO. But that's not how it works under TPP. It goes to a three-person um, arbitration panel, which is not bound by any precedence. It's bound only by the interpretation um, of those three jurists in that arbitration panel based on the text of the um, negotiated document. So are you saying it's different from what we signed yes. in the deal with China? Absolutely. And uh, this takes that, I mean, arbitration always has a place, but this takes um, arbitration way out uh, where we've never been before. And, and that's the danger here. And well, it's one of the dangers. And, and that's, oh, I'm going to make one other point before I come back to dairy on this. The, the argument is being very falsely um, lined up here. So um, the, the businesses and the government and everybody else who think this is a fantastic idea say that if you raise any questions about this, you're being anti-trade. I don't think no, 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 they are. Oh, no, no, no. I heard, I heard the Minister of Trade Negotiations himself, Tim Grosser, say that in a TPP seminar, which I participated in on Friday. And he lectured us for 20 minutes, twice his allotted time, <laughs> uh, on this mag, you know, this Panglossian view of hyperglobalization. Well, it wasn't, wasn't the impression we had from this morning's discussion. Oh, no, no, believe me, that's because uh, I've, I've got it in the neck from a number of people on this. <laughs> and, You're no, used to that, though, Rob. Yeah, no, no. Of course, I'm used to it, but but that's the point. Yeah. That's how it's being. It, that's how it's being phrased, and it's not about being anti-trade because rather huffily people say, "Well, what's the counterfactual? What would you do instead of this?" Well, you would do a sensible trade agreement, <laughs> not go off into this wild blue yonder of well, extraterritorial law. Are the two law. the two things ne necessarily mutually exclusive? And by a process of negotiation, and hopefully with some kind of uh, public input, including from experts in their own industries, could we uh, get this back somewhere towards what uh, what you would say would be a, a successful deal? Because let's face it, Daha isn't going anywhere, is it? No, you know, no, it's no. starting to make Uruguay look like a quick job. <laughs> so, right. so you know, is it able to be negotiated to something that everyone can live with? Of course, and it's really important that New Zealand is playing a leading role in those negotiations. However, that's a theoretical prospect because. Um, this is not about trade. This is about the U.S. imposing um, its legal and corporate 
legal frameworks and corporate culture um, on the rest of the world. Exactly what Bill Rosenberg exactly. was arguing this uh, morning. But that doesn't mean, given that there are several countries negotiating and that there is the prospect at some point that this is a basis for a China, broader China deal, uh, isn't there the process for, for, for mitigating or for negotiating that back towards something a bit more neutral? Uh, I, I would welcome that wholeheartedly. Um, but would, the, would US business um, give ground on this? <laughs> I don't think it will. And I'll raise another point. Um, the way the sort of sunny uplands are laid out for us by Mr. Grosser and others is that this is um, a docking agreement. So once this is in place, all other free trade agreements lock into it, and that has its own problems. Um, but, of course, China will come in there. Well, n not the way it looks at the moment it won't, and China's made that incredibly clear. So... Um, Surely all of the signatories, perhaps even including, and if not most certainly including the US, want China ultimately involved, given oh. the size of its markets. So of, of don't course. they have to negotiate something China can become part of? Uh, I wouldn't rate very highly um, the US's um, long-term view on this. <laughs> this is very geopolitical. Mm. and they have, The US has hijacked TPP quite frankly, for its own geopolitical constructs and its own strategies. I don't have confidence, n nor do I have the confidence that the 11, uh, the 10 other countries negotiating will be able to push the U. I mean, it's like us and Peru. Well, I'm being unfair. There's some other countries in there, too. I, 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 I would love to be wrong. And we'll right. wait and see. Let me, let me ask you that question that others are asking you, which is what is the counterfactual, or perhaps even more directly, what is the cost of us pulling out of this if it proceeds with the other nations? <laughs> well, this is where I think the evidence is incredibly scanty. Um, if you look at the trade barriers into the US now, uh, they are minimal, um, assuming you don't want to sell lots of cheap commodities. They are minimal. And there are fascinating examples around the world and I'll offer you Brazil as a very good one which Brazil has refused to sign with the US the sort of investment protocol that the US is demanding in TPP um, but US companies are the largest foreign directors investors in Brazil so if anybody gets really scary about this and says oh you know if we don't sign the TPP we'll never have another US investment here that's completely nonsense I mean Australia has had the confidence to say no so um if this doesn't work, it is not the end of the world. I actually think the regional um, agreement that was announced last week with China and ASEAN in the lead um, is potentially much more interesting because it actually reflects um, a different view of intellectual property, and I mean that positively, um, rather than a 15-year-old view that the US is locked into. Um, I, I think that where the ASEAN-China regional grouping is going, uh, which may yet become at loggerheads with TPP, um, actually better represents what the nature of modern business is like, whereas the US is trying to impose its own pretty old model on, is, on the rest of the world. Just given what you were saying earlier about the possible perverse incentives for Fonterra when it comes to its own strategic development, if it gets access to the US market, what, why is it so keen... Or does it simply disagree with your analysis on that? Um, no, it doesn't disagree. I had a pretty spirited debate about it with Malcolm Bailey, um, who represents the dairy companies, but is also, I, I think he's still on the Fonterra board, um, at this seminar last Friday. Um, and um, I'll leave the people in the audience to judge who won that argument. Um, but um, no, I, I, it's, it's really hard to get... You know, a clear view on some things out of Fonterra, um, but they 
one, they've got to acknowledge it's tactical because in any of the strategic documents <laughs> that the strategy refresh under the new chief executive has come up with, um, selling more commodities into the US isn't part of the strategy. So this isn't strategic. So there's a real danger here um, that our government is going to make concessions to get an incredibly marginal tactical advantage for Fonterra in a market which isn't a domestic market, which isn't central to its global strategy, um, at the expense of other things. Speaking of Fonterra, you want to go back to last I week? I um, I did a very b- bad bit of maths to which... To all our listeners, I apologise. When we were discussing um, how many farmers had offered shares into the fund, um, not buying into the units themselves, I did a bad piece of arithmetic, and I came up with almost 50%. I was wrong. I dropped to zero. It's only about 5% of the shares sold uh, into that fund actually came from farmers, which is a very interesting measure of how uh, nervous they are about this. And they need to... and quite. Honestly, what's happened with the price since, it's really, it's shot up. It closed at 6.90 last night after launch of 5.50 last Friday. This is a very difficult price because it's reduced the yield on those units to pretty low levels. Um, and it really start if this persisted, it would really put a pressure on the underlying share price, which then has all sorts of implications for the farmers themselves. So no need to panic yet, um, but this is we, it's going to be quite fascinating to see how Fonterra and its um, advisors manage to try and sort of stabilise the market a bit. With the farmers playing wait and see, because a lot of the advice actually some of the big institutional houses were putting out was wait and see what what, what the what, what the fair price is. Certainly the, the price, uh, as you say, shot up almost from the beginning of trading. So the demand's there. Um, and, and, and are the farmers themselves playing wait and see? Oh yeah, quite, very, very wisely. And of course the other thing that made a lot of people grumpy last week was that uh, Fonterra's advisors allocated 42% of those units to overseas investors, which is, I and others would argue, is far too high, when there's clear domestic demand. So um, there were some individual investors here in New Zealand only got 5% of the allocation they wanted, and some institutional investors only between 10 and 20. And I, I think that's a serious mistake well, to have sold so much A serious mistake in, in what? In the, I mean, from the, from the perspective of, you know, and a lot of people have argued this is all about giving the stock exchange some muscle. Uh, from, the, from the point of view of having international investors actually coming to our stock exchange and, and wanting to invest in a, in a company on it, is that not seen as a positive thing? Uh, the higher priority is to get New Zealanders to invest in other things other than houses. And um, if they wanted to invest in the these units instead of houses, which I think would be a good idea. Um, they can't get them, but they can still get houses. So um, I think that Fonterra <laughs> needed to look to um, domestic investors first, and it seriously shortchanged them. It's looking after itself, isn't it? It's first task. Uh, oh, of course. But even within that, I would argue it's going to be better off having a, a loyal, long-term um, domestic investor base rather than institutions that which might flit in and out um, because they're buying a sector. They're not, you know, they, they want to be into agriculture, they want to be into dairy, and they'll change their mind later. Whereas I think that a domestic investor going, oh, you know, we're right behind the New Zealand farmers, we'll put our money into Fonterra, thank you. Let's um, talk about what's happened with the Stock Exchange, actually, and the impact of this launch. Um, I know you'll be on your mind anyway as we do the sort of wrap-ups towards the end of the year, but also there's talk that there's some other companies, perhaps not on Fonterra's scale, but some other companies that might be encouraged to launch after this. Let's have a yeah, chat. no, I... Um, you, when, you know, hears various names being floated, um, which is extremely interesting. And I, I really hope this does um, stimulate demand in domestic investor demand. I, I think that would be fabulous. Thanks, Rod. Rod Oren, business commentator.